Good morning all. Hello. Uh, Please do flick in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. If you've got one of the church Bibles, you'll want page 1006. If uh, any of you get distracted as we go along, if you're that sort of person that needs to keep your mind going, there's some question sheets here that you are welcome to grab. Um, The children love them, but they are for adults too, if you need to um, help yourself concentrate as you go along. I'm not implying I'll be boring, but um, sometimes it helps, so do help yourself. So yes, in Mark's Gospel this morning, we're continuing our series, we're at chapter 5. And the Gospel is a record of Jesus' life, the good news about him. It's a record of his teachings and his miracles. And this morning, you will need to believe in miracles with me. And I mean supernatural, out-of-the-ordinary occurrences, unexplainable happenings. I don't know if you all are believers in miracles, or whether some of you are sceptical. You might be the sort of person that's natural, observable. Anything that's explainable or scientific, that's, that's me, that's my sort of person. You believe in what you can see, what you can sense, what you can explain. Maybe the thought of considering the possibility of miracles seems like science fiction to you. It's all just a little bit mumbo-jumbo. Well, this morning we reach a passage in Mark's Gospel where we not only have a miracle, we have a miracle in the spiritual realm. The Bible has much to say about the real world, about the physical, about science. Large sections of the Bible are factual and practical and backed up with historical and statistical and scientific evidence. But this book is about God. And God is not natural. God is supernatural. God is spirit. So if this book is about him, then you have to expect that at times we'll be dealing with a world that is outside of our own. And perhaps sometimes outside of our own comprehension and understanding. Now I think we're looking today at a section where Mark is aiming to prove to his readers that Jesus has a power and authority that is not only natural, it's supernatural. Now Mark is writing in a time and to a culture where authority and power, they're important to people. We focus far more on wealth and possessions. Everyone, particularly in the southeast of England, wants to know what area you live in, how many rooms your house has, what car you drive, how many inches is your TV. Wealth and possessions are how we sort of measure someone's importance. But I think the people of Jesus' day measured importance by the power you have, by the level of authority you can speak with. So people would listen to you if you were important and you delivered, no, you deserved respect because of your position, because of your power. So Mark is writing this gospel's record, this good news of Jesus' life, to persuade people to believe that Jesus is worth following. That's simply why he's writing, to persuade people to believe that Jesus is worth following. And Mark focuses on proving that Jesus speaks with real authority. So one of the first things that Mark records is the messenger 
called John the Baptist, and this is in Mark chapter 1, right at the beginning. A messenger called John the Baptist was sent on ahead of Jesus to herald his arrival. This is the sort of thing that happened when a king or an emperor or an important dignitary came to town. A messenger was sent ahead to say, make way, the king is coming, prepare him room. Mark records this in Mark chapter 1. It was illustrating Jesus' authority. Only a king, only an important dignitary would have a herald to announce their arrival. Then Mark adds a second proof of Jesus' authority. He records Jesus' baptism. Jesus was baptised, and although he didn't really need to be because he didn't have any sin to be washed clean of, he was baptised, and as he comes up out of the water, God's Spirit descends from heaven like a dove. I don't know, as you imagine that, what you think of. It's a wonderful scene to think of, but something physically came from heaven, descended upon Jesus, God's Spirit. And at the same time, God the Father's voice is heard. The voice says, God says, you are my son. So if any one of Mark's readers might be sceptical about Jesus' authority, about his power, Mark wants to prove right at the beginning there is good reason to believe that Jesus is the most authoritative person ever. He has his own herald, and the actual voice of God declares, this is my son. It's a stamp of approval from the monarch. Jesus is important. And from Mark 2, verse 13, to Mark 4, verse 34, which we've already preached through in our little series, Mark describes some of Jesus' teaching. If he wants to persuade his readers to follow Jesus... He has to explain what Jesus taught. And he covers uh, topics like fasting and keeping the Sabbath as a day of rest. He covers Jesus calling people to follow him, his official disciples. Covers Jesus' opinion on Beelzebub, the enemy of God. And then finally there's some thoughts on what God's kingdom is like and how we are to understand it. And having spent this number of verses proving that Jesus was wise, that he had great insight and understanding, that he taught with authority, Mark gets back to recording some events that should prove to his readers that Jesus had real power to go with this teaching authority. He records Jesus' power over nature. We're in Mark 4, at verse 35. And we see Jesus' power over nature, and Dav preached on this last week, as he calms a storm. Then after we see uh, the record of his power over nature, Mark records a passage here today that we're looking at where Jesus has power over the spiritual realm. He casts out evil spirits. And just in case his readers find these miracles too big or abstract, we've got next in uh, chapter 5 that Jesus 
heals in an intimate, personal way in the touching of a woman who's been ill for 12 years. And then finally, Mark finishes this um, four-punch attack on doubters, on sceptics, by showing that Jesus shows the greatest uh, showing of power possible as Jesus overcomes death and heals a little girl, brings her to life again. So Mark hits his readers with four solid proofs of Jesus' power in quick succession. And Dav spoke last week on Miracle 1. Today is Miracle 2. Next week, Dav will preach on 3 and 4 together. That's the plan. So let's look at the miracle in today's passage in Mark chapter 5. The first thing I want you to note from this passage that Jay read earlier is that Jesus had had an eventful few hours. We actually need to rewind slightly and look back at chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus is surrounded by a massive crowd and they want to hear him speak. So he gives in in, uh, this sermon, this address to the people, four big lessons from a boat. He's on a boat there on the hillside Four big lessons. I don't know if it was four separate sermons or a long four-point sermon. But this teaching seems to take all day. Because verse 35 of Mark chapter 4 says that when evening came, Jesus is finished. And he says to his disciples, can you sail me away now? Can we pop over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee? He needs a rest. He's tired. And he falls asleep in the boat because he's exhausted after teaching all day. The journey across the lake, it's a few miles. It would have taken a couple of hours. And as Jesus falls asleep, the crew face this furious storm halfway across. And we know last week that Jesus stood up when he was woken by his fearful followers. And he stops the storm by simply saying, quiet, be still. Three words, and the storm is stopped. And they safely arrive on the eastern or perhaps southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And almost immediately, tired Jesus and tired and slightly scared crew are met and approached by a tormented man. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, he records that there are actually two men who'd been living together amongst the tombs of this region. But Mark here just focuses on one of them. Actually, Luke does the same, just focuses on one of the two men. And we're not told why they made that choice to focus on one. I suppose it's possible that the two men came together out of the tombs, but one of them was more vocal. He came forward. He was more confrontational and he naturally became the focus. Maybe the other man was a bit more timid, a little bit in the background, just watching to see what happened. Mark deems it most important to focus on the confrontational man at the front. And as well as telling us there were two men, Matthew's Gospel, and it's Matthew chapter 8, if you want to look at it later. In Matthew, he also tells us that they were so violent, had been so violent recently, that none of the locals could pass by these tombs. 
In verse 6 of chapter 5, here in Mark, Mark tells us that at least one of the men, probably both, ran towards Jesus as he lands on the shore. He's had this eventful two-hour sail across the lake. There'd been a big storm. He's walked ashore tired, and suddenly two aggressive, violent men have run at him. They're probably naked. They're most likely hairy and dishevelled and battered and bruised, and they are very loud, according to these passages. And they appear right in Jesus' face. I would have been petrified by this confrontation. But the man in focus runs at Jesus, straight towards him, and bows his knee. Hits the ground, bows at Jesus' feet. It's in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he cries out, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And there are three important things to note about this question, about what he says. Firstly, the phrase, what do you want with me, is uh, uh, probably better translated as what interest do you have in me? What do we have in common? Why, why are you here? What do you want with me, I suppose, works. But what do we have in common? The man wants to know why Jesus has made this special trip across the lake through the storm to bother him. Why was Jesus interested in him? The second thing to note from what he says, what he asks, is that he recognises Jesus. Verse 6 says, what, no, verse 7, sorry, of Mark chapter 5. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? He recognises Jesus. He saw him from a distance. He sprints down to intercept him. But how did he know who Jesus was? On this occasion, Jesus hadn't sent a messenger ahead of himself. No one had gone across the sea to say he was coming. Jesus has done most of his teaching on the uh, west side of the lake amongst the Jews. But now he's travelled to the east side, to the Gentile area. These people weren't his own people. They weren't his family. He was perhaps not well known or understood over there. And it's not like Jesus had been able to take a photo of himself and post it on Facebook or Instagram to say, look where I've just landed, on the southeast shore. There's no internet, no mobiles, not even a phone to call across and say he's coming. How did this man know he had come? And why was he convinced that Jesus had wanted to interfere with him? What do you want with me? The man asks. Well, the third thing to note from this question in verse 7 gives us a clue. See, the man calls Jesus the Son of the Most High God. And at this point, we're very early in Mark's Gospel. Very early. Not much has happened so far. Well, I suppose a lot has happened in some ways, but Jesus hasn't been active that long. So probably he's more widely known as Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the Nazarene, maybe Jesus the teacher, Rabbi Jesus. 
In the boat, it's possible that the disciples had just seen, I think this man is the son of God. But that was only 10 minutes before, half an hour before. But this man who approaches Jesus calls him son of the most high God. And most high God was not normally a name that Jews used to refer to God. Jesus' own people didn't really use that phrase. This man was a Gentile, used a Gentile phrase, but had recognised that Jesus is the son of the most high God. How is it possible that he recognised that? Not even Jesus' own family or own people had fully grasped it yet. Well, the NIV title in this section says Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. And at various points, it says that this man was a man with an impure spirit within him. Other translations say an unclean or an evil spirit. And some people over the centuries have tried to explain this man's condition in scientific and medical terms. Perhaps he was evil, perhaps he was psychotic, perhaps he had some sort of explainable mental condition. We can explain this. But the passage does not allow us to think of this as a medical condition. This is a spiritual condition. In other parts of the Bible, similar people are uh, are described as being possessed by an impure spirit. And often they have supernatural abilities. It's like they exist in another realm where they can see and know things. Sometimes they can see the future. Sometimes they can communicate with dead people. Sometimes they can communicate in a supernatural way. In many places in the Bible, they recognise the authority of God even when it hasn't been displayed. And none of this is true for medically poorly people. Well, not regularly. The scriptures make it clear on each occasion that it's the spirit or the demon that has the power and not the person. These two men have been tormented by an evil force. And according to Luke's gospel, for a long time, it's been many years since they've been at home. And it's not just a mental health situation. This is something more. But as Jesus approaches them, it's the evil spirits within inside this man that realises their time is up. In fact, they are terrified by the power and authority of Jesus. Let's read the main conversation from verses 6 to 12 again. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. 
allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. In verse 6, they fall at Jesus' knees, at his feet. In verse 7, they plead to know what interest does Jesus have in them. They then implore or adjure him not to torture and torment them. That's exactly what they've been doing to this guy, but they plead with Jesus, don't torment us. Then in verse 10, they beg Jesus again and again to not be sent from this area. Then in verse 12, they beg to have a home in this world, beg to be amongst the pigs so that they can still have some small influence in the natural realm. In Matthew's Gospel, they say, you haven't come here to torture us before the appointed time, have you? They know that Jesus will have the victory over all evil. But they are genuinely concerned that he has arrived early to spoil their plans. In Luke's Gospel, the spirits beg him not to send them to the abyss. It's a name for the place of eternal judgment and evil. Abyss means the deepest pit, like the bottom of the ocean or the centre of a black hole. It's lifeless, it's dark, it's empty. And the demons seem to know that's where they're eventually headed. And they're begging that it's not time now. Now I don't fully understand what demon possession looks like. Or how it happens. This seems alien to me. I don't know whether demons still have a way of tormenting people today. Or whether this was just something that happened in Jesus' time. I don't know how they could possess humans to start with or even pigs. I don't know why they'd want to torment humans. I haven't worked out why Jesus was okay with thousands of pigs drowning in this story. But I do know a couple of things from God's word and from this passage which will hopefully help us learn about the authority and power of Jesus. The first thing I want to tell you this morning is that there really is a spiritual battle going on. Dark is battling against light. Evil against good. The demons against God's armies. Think of every Star Wars battle you've ever watched, every Lord of the Rings battle. It's always dark forces against light. And this is, this is history. The dark forces of the universe hate God. They hate, but he loves. They destroy, but he gives life. They bring darkness, but God gives light. And we may not be able to see much of the spiritual battle that rages, but we can definitely see the effects of it in our world today. This physical world of ours, it is impacted by that spiritual battle. There is anger and evil, war and greed, pain and darkness, loneliness and despair all over the world. There's massive wars between whole countries on one side and there's 
small personal dark places in individuals' hearts. But Jesus came into the world to win this battle for us. This battle is bigger than us. It's not something we can win on our own. It's not even something we can fully understand or explain. It's not natural. It's supernatural. But Jesus came into the world to win this battle for us. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, he records that Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I think he was talking in a way about the devil, about these demons. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Also in John's Gospel, John 8 verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I do not know why the devil hates God, why he hates people, why he wants to destroy God's creation. But I do know that we must not ever listen to the lies the evil one tells us. He tells us we should live in darkness, that we are worthless, that we'll always be in pain. But Jesus sailed through a storm to get to this man and remove the evil from him. Jesus was tired, he'd worked all day, it was late at night, but he said we're sailing across through a storm to get to this man. And if you read on, Jesus leaves and goes straight back. Don't know how long this episode takes, but it could just been an hour. Jesus sailed through a storm to get to this man to remove the evil and the darkness from him. In a broader sense, Jesus came down into the world from heaven, a place of light and joy, came down into the world and died on the cross. The immortal God died to defeat evil once and for all. He came for you. He came for me. And whilst he was here, the devil tried to tempt him. The demons tried to distract him, to stop him. And in the end, they think they've won when they've killed Jesus. He was crucified on a cross. Evil thought it won. But Jesus has the final victory when he's raised to life again. His tomb is found empty. And he appears to his people and says, no, death doesn't have victory over me. God has raised me to life again. And I want to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter how much evil, how much darkness you've let into your life. Jesus can heal you. This man had thousands of spirits possessing him. Don't even understand what that means, but Jesus saved him from it. On the cross, a thief who had done evil, who'd been caught, who deserved to be punished, was about to die. He was forgiven by Jesus and promised a place in paradise. 
No evil is too big. This evil was big. Demon possession, it was scary. And it's never too late, even as he died, the thief on the cross finds hope and paradise. He finds life and light. As Jesus promises him a place with him in paradise. No evil's too big. It's not too late to turn to Jesus for light and life and goodness. This man got freedom from his demons. Next week, a woman gets healing from the illness that inflicted her. And a little girl gets new life when she had died. There is a scary and confusing evil in this passage. And Jesus sails through the storm to get to it, to cast out the evil. That's why Jesus came, that's why Jesus crossed the sea. So what should we do? Well, you'll notice in this passage there are two reactions to Jesus' power here. From verse 14 to 17, the people, including the pig owners, misunderstood Jesus. And they beg him to leave. They decide they don't want his power. They reject him. They plead for him to leave them alone. They want to enjoy life as it is. They're a bit scared of his power. They don't want his influence. They ask him to leave. And it's so sad. The creator of the whole world, the sovereign king of everything, has sailed through a storm to get to them. And they reject him. They send him away. That's one reaction to Jesus' power. To reject it. To say you don't want it. To be fearful of it. But in verses 18 to 20, we see a different response to Jesus. You see, the man who was healed, the man whose soul was released, who found freedom when these spirits were cast out, he doesn't reject Jesus. The others had begged Jesus to leave. He begs to follow Jesus. He says, Lord, may I travel with you? Can I live life with you, Jesus? Can I follow you? He'd found freedom from the things that tormented him. And he wants to give up everything that he knew on this side of the lake and travel with Jesus to follow him, to be with him, to learn from him. This is the right way to react to Jesus, to love him and simply want to follow him. And actually, Jesus doesn't immediately remove this man from his people. He doesn't say, yeah, come on, follow me now. He doesn't take this man from his home. Because when Jesus rescues us from our sin, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, when he rescued you from your sin, from the dark place you were in, wouldn't it have been lovely if he just took you to heaven then? The moment you knew freedom in Christ, wouldn't it be great if, bang, you were in heaven? Where everything is good and all is light. Would have been good. But Jesus doesn't take us away from this world and all the darkness in it immediately. Because he gives the man a job to do. He says to the man, 
And we're in verse 19 of Mark 5. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, you've got a job to do. You're still here because you're supposed to go and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And this is a serious job, Christian. Because although I'm not sure whether we still have demons possessing people in the same way, I do know that our world is full of sad and lonely and tormented people who need healing from Jesus. And if we don't tell them the good news, the devil will definitely tell them bad news. He's going to lie to them. He's going to persuade them to believe they are worthless. He's going to tell them that life is pointless. He's going to bring darkness. It's an important job. If we're not telling the good news, they are hearing the bad news. If you aren't a follower of Jesus this morning, you need to make this choice. Jesus offers life and life to the full. Life in all its goodness. Will you beg him to leave like the people did here? Or will you beg him to forgive you and heal you and help you to follow him? He's the light of the world. Mark in his gospel here challenges us to think how powerful is our Jesus? When you think of him, do you think of him as a gentle uh, Soft man who welcomes the children to him, got children on his knees, quiet and timid. Because Mark has been hitting his readers with punches that say, that is not Jesus. Jesus is powerful. How powerful is your Jesus? Is he in control as he sleeps and a storm rages around him? Does he stand up and say, quiet, be still? And the storms of this life stop. Is he begged by demons? We'll find out next week that Jesus' cloak heals. Just just a touch heals a woman. Is death too much of a problem for your Jesus? Well, next week he raises the dead. How powerful is your Jesus? And how much authority do you give him? That's what these five chapters have been about, the power and authority of Jesus. I'm going to read from Philippians 2 as we come to a close. I feel like I always read from this passage. I apologise if it's every sermon, but I love it. Philippians 2, we're on page 1179 if you want to follow along. This is about Christ. It says, he was in very nature God. But did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, even the demons. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalted Jesus to the highest place, brought him back into the heavens, seated him on the throne, gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This demon runs at Jesus and bows, knowing the authority and power he has. We're going to sing at the name of Jesus. In the first, the verse 4, says, in your hearts, enthrone him. Make him your king. There let him subdue. Make him take control of all that is not holy, all that is not true. Crown him as your captain in temptation's hour. And let his will enfold you in its light and in its power. This is what I want to... Uh, invite you to do this morning to let Jesus be your captain to bow your knee before him and to let his light and his power come into your life if you want to talk to me more about Jesus' power and authority afterwards if you think that today might be the day you should bow before him and submit to following him please do come and speak to me or Austin or Jay. But please do hear me this morning when I say you've got a choice to make. Will you follow Jesus or will you continue to live in darkness? 